Hello everyone, this is a Discord conversation. I'm Job van Achterberg and today my guest is Aaron. Hey Aaron, what brings you to the Discord? Hey Job, thanks for having me. Um, I uh, have been a, a long-time listener to Paul's podcast. Um, I was trying to figure out the other day when I started listening to it it might have been even early 2017, late 2016. I don't know. Was that pre-Peterson? Uh, no, but it was, it, I, I almost immediately switched from listening to Peterson to listening to Paul. How was it that? Was like once, once Peterson's sort of lectures became more political and less academic, I just sort of found myself migrating. And I think he just popped up in a YouTube search once and then I was, I was, was hooked. Huh. What, what about it hooked you? Um, I think one of the things that, so I, uh, I've been working for the last, gosh, is it nine years now? Yeah, nine years as a middle and high school teacher. And one of the things that I had noticed, um, both in my particularly high school students and a lot of my colleagues too, especially those that were in grad school, my then- well, the woman who's now my wife was in grad school at the time. And I just, I noticed a lot of uh, inability, even among really, really intelligent people, an inability to have uh, difficult conversations um, about topics that are contentious, you know, without sort of impugning, I don't know, vice to somebody, right? Without assuming some sort of ill intent. Mm. Um and, and immediately when I started listening to Paul, I could, there was like this sense that here's somebody who's willing to listen to somebody who a lot of people that, that I'm currently talking to would immediately view as repugnant, whether or not they actually are. <laughs> Paul was willing to sort of like, I could, he was just, he immediately gave me the sense that he was somebody who was willing to give sort of space, space to, uh, to that kind of a person. Um, in fact, I don't remember when your first interview with Paul was, but that one was a really, that was a really neat one. Oh, that feels so long ago. <laughs> Do you remember when that was? Uh, July 20, 2018, maybe? Something like that? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but that's a perfect example of what I'm talking about because it was like, here was this person who, I mean, Correct me if I'm wrong. It's been a long time since I listened to it. But my sense was that you were sort of in this place where it was like, I can't, I can't deny that there's a there there on the one hand, but, but taking a leap here also seems like something I can't quite do. So I'll just sort of try and experiment and see what comes of it without saying I can assent to X, Y, or Z. Yeah, yeah. Hearing it described that much, I kind of realized it hasn't changed all that much either. But <laughs> but, but that was... Oh, go ahead, go ahead. I haven't heard it described that way yet. There's a there, there. That's that's a new expression for me. Yeah, I guess I guess what I mean is like, it seemed like you couldn't, you couldn't be dismissive of whatever this church thing is, but you also couldn't just sort of throw away, you know... The doubts that you had or have right no no but, i i had to treat it i had to treat it honestly yeah yeah 
but the fact that somebody the fact that paul was was you know able to kind of have that conversation with you you know i growing up in sort of the christian world uh i've known people who sort of have lived in that space or have sort of deconstructed as paul says and have entered that sort of space and a lot of times people just don't know what to do with them at all and they start questioning and then the reaction they get from people who are in their communities sort of uh, it, it just leads them to sort of spiral, you know, because they're questioning and then they get negative feedback and then they say, well, this is obviously a terrible place for me to be. So then they just go running towards the door. Hmm. What, what is your own background? Um, I, so I grew up, well, I was baptized Anglican, but I don't really remember it. I, well, because I was a baby, but I was chrismated into the Orthodox Church when I was two. My parents converted from Anglicanism uh, to Orthodoxy. Wow. Yeah. What yeah. prompted and, that? Well, it's it's kind of an interesting story. Um, my so the the parish that my mother was attending. My my mother was a lifelong Anglican. Um, through her grandparents, her parents were not regular attenders. Um, my father was a lapsed Roman Catholic. Um, who hadn't gone, you know, probably in years. But uh, the, the Anglican church my mother was attending, the priest there saw things coming down the pike in the Anglican communion that he, he didn't think he could assent to. And so he sort of went hunting for a place to take his congregation. Um, and he got in, in touch with the Antiochian Orthodox Church and... From what I understand of the history, he sort of had a book club with a lot of like prominent church members at the same time and had them reading a lot of Orthodox material. And then eventually he sort of laid all his cards out on the table and said, OK, I'm going to call the bishops and see if they'll take us as a parish. Wow, that must have been difficult for the congregation itself. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was a little boy, a baby. I was two years old, like I was saying, so. I don't, uh, my information about it is, is all secondhand, but, you know, surprisingly about three quarters of the congregation made the initial move. Um, but there was a lot of falling away after that. Um, not that, that whole three quarters didn't stick with it. Some of them sort of went back after a few months or years. Um, yeah. But we we lost the building, and so we had to get a new building. And actually, that's that's the building I'm in right now. Uh, I'm at my I'm a teacher at the the school that's associated with the church, and I'm I'm up at my office right now. So the, that makes the school a religious school, then. It does. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It was it was started in about 2005, um, and I was a high school student there until about 2008. I graduated went to college, taught straight out of college for a few years, and then about three years ago moved back home uh, to St. Peter's, which is my home parish, and also where the, where the school is, and now I'm a teacher there. So help me out for a second with some, some doctrinal uh, details. So the Anglican Church, that is the split from Catholicism by Henry VIII, I think? Correct. And they don't acknowledge the Pope then, I would guess. No. Okay. No. Okay. So um, 
that would make a switch to orthodoxy less difficult. Yes, yes. You don't you don't have to, you know, you don't have to ascent to Rome. You don't have to cross the Tiber. That's true. <laughs> um, there, there is actually, at least in the U.S., I don't know if this is true in Europe. In the U.S., there's, there's a, you know, it's gone on for a couple of decades now. There's fairly close relations between traditional Anglicans and Orthodox because the Anglicans are okay with, you know, they have bishops and they have sort of hierarchical structure. And so that doesn't scare them very much about the Orthodox. Um, and they have monks and they have all these sorts of things. So there are some structural similarities that create an affinity. But yeah, neither, neither one of us has a pope. So we get along about that too. <laughs> <laughs> How do your parents look back on this? Um, well, it was, it was actually sort of the beginning of my dad coming back to church. Um, for my mom, she talks about it like, uh, it's interesting. She talks about it as though she never really felt like she changed her mind about anything. But the... Uh, coming into the Orthodox Church wasn't so much a change of mind as it was just sort of an affirming of things that she had intuited for a long time that people hadn't really been saying. Um, but my dad, he actually started coming back to church right around the time the move happened. It was, it was in the midst of making the shift from Anglicanism to Orthodoxy. And I guess the, the story was that word had gotten out, we'd made it official that we were going to join the Orthodox Church and the Anglican diocese sent people to our church to see if there were enough people in the pews, basically, you know, for us to keep the building. And if there weren't enough people there, they were just going to say, you guys can't keep this place, get out of here. Hmm. Um, and so what ended up happening was my, my mom went to my dad that week and said, look, I'm not forcing you to come to church. I'm not forcing, I'm not telling you what to believe. You don't ever have to come back again, but please just come and be a butt in the seat so that we can try to keep this building. Um, so he did. And then he just kind of never quit going. <laughs> huh. After that, he just kept going and he's done that ever since. And that's been almost 30, 35 years. <laughs> do you think that also has it changed him as far as you can tell hard for me to say because this all happened when i was a baby oh the uh, only because i mean like he's still going right yeah the only father i've ever had has been the only father i've ever known has been the one who goes the one who wasn't going was was that was sort of the story before i came along uh, uh okay yeah yeah but uh Yeah, I, I guess my question isn't well worded. Like, do you think him just always going to church, if that has, yeah, yeah, I guess my question is, is, is poorly thought thought out. Um, so, you you're a teacher in this church, uh, in this school that's affiliated with the church. It's how, how many students are there? Like, is it a large school? Oh no, it's tiny. We're. Uh... I don't know what our current enrollment right now is because of course the world is upside down and we're, mm. we're gaining and shedding students, uh, you know, like crazy at the same time. Um, because of course some people are, well, so we're somewhere between 60 and 80 students and that's K through 12. Um, that's the entire student body. And are there students that aren't uh, associated with members of the parish, you think? Oh yeah. Fair amount. Really? Amount. Oh yeah. 
yes. do you know why that would be? Um, well, the, the school was never, it wasn't ever billed as a school that was particularly for Orthodox people, if that makes sense. We weren't, we weren't uh, shy about our identity, but it, it wasn't, the school wasn't sort of designed as solely education for our members. It was from its inception seen as a form of ministry as well to the larger community. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's always sort of been billed as such. Um, I mean, I would say that most of our student body is at least sort of loosely or culturally Christian. But even there, there are some exceptions. There are some families that, that are not church attenders of any sort or, or even sort of culturally Christian that come. There have been some that have come, that have become members of the church through the school, through their children. Right. Um, but it's always been, it, it's, it's never been uh, a solely Orthodox student body. I think now we probably have more than we ever had, and it's probably half. I'm just wondering what the school is like, because I'm, I'm just drawing these, these mental pictures, <laughs> like halls <laughs> covered in icons. Teotokos everywhere. <laughs> well, to, to further confuse your mental picture, uh, we are, I mentioned this, I dropped this bomb on the Discord the other day. I'm, I, I have a two-year-old son and I'm on summer break and my, my wife works, uh, she's been a teacher for a long time, but she's recently left the classroom and has started doing financial advising. So uh, my, uh, my summer break is, is, a lot less sort of free than it usually is. I, I, cause I'm basically the one who's spending all, all the time with, with our son so she can get her business off the ground. So uh -huh. my appearances on the discord are sort of infrequent right now. It just sort of depends on when, when he's, when he's taking a nap or if he decides to do that. Day. <laughs> yeah. um, but, but, uh, I mentioned the other day on the discord when I was there that the, the Western, the, the church that I attend is actually, it's a, it's a Western Rite Orthodox Church, um, which which is a very rare thing. And basically, what it means is we don't use most Orthodox churches use uh, what's called the Liturgy of Saint John Chrysostom, which is a liturgy that was developed in the Byzantine Empire. Um, and so it looks very sort of you know foreign to us Westerners, mm -hmm. right? But the, uh, the church that I attend is actually, it, it uses an old Roman rite for its, uh, for its liturgy, for its, its mass. So our service actually looks like a pre-Vatican II Catholic mass done in English. I don't even know how to interpret this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you said a pre-Vatican Latin mass in English? Yeah, a pre-Vatican II Catholic Mass done in English. Yeah, no, I, I have no idea what that means. Well, if you were to go to uh, an Anglican church, also you would you would see it. Basically, what it means is, you know, we don't have we have icons, but they they look a little bit more like uh, things you would see in the Book of Kells. Um, our our chanting is Gregorian. Hmm that sort of thing. Uh, 
our vestments are Western. What does what so that, is, what, what's that uh, mean? Well, it means that, so in, in the East, one thing you'll see if you were to ever go to a, an Eastern church is that the, the altar boys have gold vestments. Whereas our altar boys have the black vestments with the white on top. The long black vestment with a, with a, with a white vestment over the top of it. So we, you know, we look more like uh, traditional Catholic or traditional Anglican, you know, church services, basically. I'm going to have to look all of this up. <laughs> <laughs> it's like there's uh, there's this this uh, YouTuber, Matt Fred. And yeah, yeah, I'm familiar. He's a Byzantine Catholic. And yeah, like I, 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 I looked at his, his evening prayers and like this, this, huh? this just sounds really orthodox to me, the way. Yeah, the way right, but <laughs> oh well, with a pope, I guess. So. <laughs> well, it's, it's so it's funny. We're sort of mirror images of each other, right? Right. That's why it made me think of it. Yeah, their prayers are often just uh, Byzantine Byzantine orders of prayer, but with special. Um, with special uh, beseechings to the Pope sort of stuck in strategically, right? Whereas ours are uh, what have now, at least for the past thousand years or so, been Catholic forms of worship where we've taken those things out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. Something about about those evening prayers just, I don't know, it really appealed to me. Like you have this wall with all the icons and you kind of have this evening ritual with your family. Yeah, it's uh, yeah we kind of lost all that in the in the great reform, but yeah, it's it's I don't I, I guess you know I've never been uh, I've never been anything but orthodox, so I don't really I don't feel as comfortable, especially after listening to Paul for so long and getting my eyes opened about sort of you know how complex the Protestant world is. <laughs> I feel less less equipped to talk about it, but yeah, you know the 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 orders of prayer, the hours of prayer are uh, they they have them in the West too, but I suppose they're not they're harder to come by nowadays. Yeah, and I mean, as a I, I've been raised Protestant, so to a degree, when I went back to church, it was a bit of just going back into the waters that I knew from childhood. But then I did this. Uh, um, in-depth course in how my church designs liturgy and I mean I learned so much about liturgy that I didn't know about you know what's this handshake for what's this color for why is this thing there why is that thing there and like oh this stuff that I never really thought about oh yeah there's all it's there's already a, a singing and a dancing to it and I guess it it, it made it made me appreciate it more I mean I'm I'm still wondering why we don't make the sign of the cross because I mean even Luther advised people to do that but it's I don't know that there's a lot of things that that are in the liturgy that I wasn't aware of but then I still wonder why a whole bunch of things were taken out I'm currently reading uh or I just finished it, the book on uh, on being a pastor in the secular age. Paul has been reading it, so I decided I should also read it. And this uh, this author just describes how pastorship changed through the ages, from the the early Catholic Church to 
the 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 Calvinist Puritans uh, after the Reformation and and, and afterwards Saddleback Church for, with Rick Warren in, in in California, and just the way that 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 this all changed and and all the the difference the Reformation made with the way that we encounter God and the way God encounters us in the world, instead of instead of you meet God in the in the liturgy in the liturgy. And in the in the you know the rituals and in the in the with the saints and and in, in the well you know what I mean you meet him everywhere you know like basically when you're cooking dinner depending on your intent when cooking dinner that's where you encounter God and just we're still dealing with the ramifications of that basically right yeah yeah that there's this yeah it's it's I've been really interested in, in, in Paul talking about that book too, um, because there's this there's this thing you often hear. This is talked about by some Orthodox thinkers in the 20th century, where they're trying to, you know, the weird thing about Orthodox theological history is, its history in English is very young. It's only about 100 years old, maybe. Um, so so Orthodox theology in English is a very new sort of thing and there's a lot of sort of feeling around for what are the right words to talk about things and mm-hmm. you know and then of course they start looking at protestantism and catholicism and say well they're using these words can we use those or not uh do we mean the same thing which is all very tricky to figure out but but one of the things that that's often talked about is sort of like seeing the world in a in a sacramental way, having a sacramental worldview, it's sometimes called by by some uh, 20th century Orthodox thinkers, right? That that like the whole world is uh, is something through which you see, and and when I hear that, and I hear you talking about this book, I sort of don't know which side of the line to put that on, right? Yeah, I don't it's... know. Go ahead. No, sorry. Go on. Well, yeah, I just, I don't know, is that, is that representative of this sort of psychologizing of, of spirituality that Paul talks about, or is that really representative of something, you know, from before that, or is it some sort of amalgam of the two? I don't really know what to make of it after listening to Paul. <laughs> yeah, and it's so weird to read about, because in a way, the whole psychologizing of, of religion is something that religion itself produced, and kind of, it, it just ended up undoing itself. Because the more I read about it, the more you kind of come to realize, and Charles Taylor says this in the, in his book, A Secular Age, that the whole new atheism is also a construction with roots in that same religion, like that, that was basically produced by Christianity through just endless analyzing and analyzing and analyzing and eventually just kind of breaking free from itself but still kind of rooted in that same religious frame. Yeah, it's, hang on, I gotta let, go let the cat out one second. Yeah, no, it's, it's funny you bring that up. One of, one of the things that, um, yeah, when you listen to people like Kitchens or Dillahunty, I suppose he's sort of a, he's sort of a second string new atheist just because he doesn't have a bigger profile. But, uh, they're so ethically concerned. They're so morally concerned. Yes. And I can't help but think, like, have you guys read? Have you guys read Nietzsche? 
I don't, I'm, I'm trying to figure out why, where, where are you justifying all this care for the downtrodden? It doesn't mean that I don't sympathize with that care for the downtrodden, but where in your system is it afforded? Yeah. I, Nietzsche just... <laughs> Nietzsche's like, you know, downtrod the more you want, rise above. <laughs> yeah, what's the problem? It's not self-evident. No, it's like embody that that embody the Greek hero archetype, you know? Be be great if you can be great. Right. And if people get in the way, well, then either they'll beat you or you'll beat them, and that's the way it goes, right? Yeah, and then Nietzsche himself, I mean, realized what he was saying, and you know, he writes the madman's speech. Uh I, I I'm looking to find God and you know how do how do we manage to do this? We murderers of all murderers. How how now will we comfort ourselves? And it's just like he was that that whole speech is just poetry, and he was so aware at the same time of of what he what he was advocating and what it would mean. And right. then then he dies, or he goes insane when he sees somebody whip a horse. Because yeah, apparently he cared for the horse so much, and he saw this great injustice, and like man. It's just tragic. I'm, yeah, that's I'm such a crazy story. Yeah, of all people, you know, who could have, yeah. I, I'm going to go back a bit to, to orthodoxy <clears throat> because mm-hmm. what, what I've seen, and I don't know if you've noticed it, but there are people who either come back to Christianity or start exploring Christianity, some of them through Peterson, uh, and they they tend to look at orthodoxy. Have you noticed something like that? I've noticed that quite a bit. Um, in fact, you do you remember, uh, it's been a while since this too, but Paul interviewed uh, an Orthodox priest, Father David Lewis? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So I know Father David Lewis. I was going to ask. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I actually know him very well because I live in North Texas as well. So his parish is like an hour away from me. Um, but not only do I know him because he's local, I know him because he used to go to St. Peter's, which is my parish, it was actually where he became Orthodox before he went to seminary. He was uh, he was my Sunday school teacher when I was a little kid <laughs> <laughs> for a time. Yeah, um, but, you know, he has a meetup. Um, and I think some people on the Discord go to that meetup. I went I went once a long time ago. Um, but. But yeah, I see. I see a lot. I see a lot of people exploring uh, uh, orthodoxy coming from Peterson. It, it is. It is a very sort of curious thing. But I can't help but wonder if part of it has to do with, you know, seeing a resonance between the way that Peterson treats myth and, you know. I'm using I'm using this term very broadly, uh, a theology of icons, and I don't just mean icons as in the images on the wall, although that's included. Um, I mean it sort of more broadly than that, like seeing the world as something that's sort of full of meaning, as though the world is sort of the whole reason it exists is because God is trying to communicate with you in sort of every blade of grass, right? That everything in the world is trying to tell you something. Hmm. 
Uh, whenever I, mean, I whenever I hear that, my modern mind just goes. Eh. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know it's a totally it's a totally opposed way of looking at the world. It's it's you know when you read people like the existentialists and they talk about like the world that's dead and has no meaning, it's like it's exactly the opposite conception. Um, because it's it's like so I teach Greek and Latin. I'm a language teacher. And one of the things that I've been thinking about recently is how, like, it seems like pre-modern societies, they sort of see the world uh, in a way sort of like language, in the sense that it's, it's something through which you see something beyond it. But the thing itself is still valuable. It's not, it's not, uh, not devalued in the exchange, um, but, it's, but it's also something that's iconic. It's like a window through which you see something beyond it. That's interesting. Uh, have you talked to Luke Thompson at all on this Discord? Just a little bit. Okay. Just a little bit. Because he talks a lot about something called iconic eyes, and it reminds me of what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, I've, I've seen him talk about that a little bit too. And I uh, recently, well, recently, it was pre-COVID. It was probably back in the fall. I filled in and taught uh, an adult Sunday school here at the church. Um, usually our priest does that, but one Sunday he was, he was busy doing something and uh, he asked me to do it and it was about iconography. So in order to prepare, I read, um, there's, a, there's a saint named St. John Damascene. Uh -huh. um, he lived during uh, iconoclasm which I'm not sure if you're familiar with iconoclasm in the, in the East, not in the West. The, wait, there was one in the East? Yes. There was an iconoclasm in the East. Huh? Um, it happens uh, like sixth, seventh century, which is, which is interesting because it coincides with the encroachment of Islam on the Eastern empire. Um, and so there's some speculation that the Islamic contention about the illegitimacy of picturing well, not just God, but, you know, they don't picture Muhammad either, right? Mm -hmm. At least traditionally. You'll find images, but you're not supposed to do that. It's a no-no. Right. <laughs> um, there's, there's thought that perhaps that sort of idea starts to germinate in the Byzantine Empire and people start to wonder, have we been doing the wrong thing all this time and should we toss all these things out? Uh, and that gains some purchase in the church and in the empire. So there are emperors and there are bishops who basically start persecuting people who think that they should use icons. And there's this split between the people who are called the iconoclasts, the iconoclosmoi, and the iconodules, or the lovers or servants of icon. And like people die over this. People are excommunicated over this. Bishops are kicked out of their diocese over it. Um, and in the midst of it all, there's this monk named St. John Damascene who writes um, on iconography and he, he talks about uh, his defense of icons. He sort of has two. This is funny because this ties into one of the things I wrote down as something to talk about. We just sort of got here without meaning to. Um, he, he argues for the legitimacy of icons because primarily the incarnation. So he says that not only sh not only can we picture 
the divine in the person of Christ. But we should, and to not do it would actually be uh, heretical because we would be denying the humanity and and uh, and the materiality of the divine. The divine has taken on and filled up materiality in the person of Christ. And to destroy icons would be to effectively deny that. I guess that's that's a fair point. And so so he he sees the iconoclasts as essentially not fully reckoning with what God becoming a human being means. Um, and secondly, he also says, and this is an interesting argument, which maybe ties into some of the things that are said on the Discord and some of the things Paul talks about, that our perception is essentially uh, imagistic or iconic. We can't, you know, we always, we make models of things. And so... St. John argues that, well, God has made our perception this way. So the whole idea of destroying icons is ultimately sort of eats itself because we'd have to destroy the very way that we perceive and we can't do that. Uh, ah, so yeah, 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 yeah. That That's an interesting so idea. Sort of a, Sorry. He has sort of a twofold <laughs> argument. No, it's okay. Yeah, it's it's I I, yeah, I thought about it like that. <clears throat> so so let me get this straight. Basically, what he's saying is we use these these models, these statues, these images, as a way to interpret the world. It's a form of language, and we shouldn't be destroying it. Well, perhaps it's it's not necessarily an an argument against iconoclasm of all sorts. I think maybe a way to understand it would be that iconoclasm can be bad. It depends on what images you're destroying. But that we can't just get rid of icons in general. That's a reality we have to work with. And it has dangers. Idolatry is real. But the solution to idolatry is not the destruction of all icons because, well, we have eyes, you know, most basically. Hmm. And what are we going to do about that? And yeah. maybe you could see that as in some sense an answer, although it comes almost a thousand years earlier to a sort of psychologizing of Christianity that, you know, but what about your eyeballs? What about the world that you see? Yeah, and I have to say, to, to be honest, I would go have to look up what the original reasons were for the iconoclasm, at least in the West that I know of. And I think it was a consequence of the Reformation. Um, but I learned about this in elementary school and forgot it all again. <laughs> yeah, I went to a very religious school, so we had to learn all this, and it was just the most boring thing. And now that I'm finally interested, <laughs> I've forgotten it all. Yeah, and I don't, you know, to be fair, that's not my area of expertise. I was actually, I was watching a documentary last night with my wife on uh, Elizabeth I, um, who is, you know, a Protestant monarch in England, who there's Mary, Queen of Scots, who's her relative, and she's a Catholic, and Catholicism is sort of outlawed in England at the time, 
And so priests are getting hunted down and tortured, and there are these Catholics who want to kill, you know, they want to kill Elizabeth. And the the documentary was about sort of espionage, basically, between like Protestant government officials and like Catholic assassins, <laughs> not officially sanctioned ones. They just happened to be Catholic, and also thought that killing the queen would bring about good things for England. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, that uh, you know watching that just shows me sort of how complex um you know that period is because my biases might be to side with the people who like the icons and you know these iconoclasts are terrible and yada 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 Mm -hmm. but the documentary mentions the the massacring of the huguenots in france which is like this horrific thing uh perpetrated by catholics against protestants these people are you know exterminated uh, I don't know if you know a whole lot about that, but I don't know a ton about it. Uh, vaguely, I know they fled to my country, but I haven't I haven't read too much about it. That's... Yeah, it just goes to show sort of the the complex nature of the situation and how there's not there's not uh, the more that I read about it, and I haven't read much. There's there's not simple moral judgments that I can make, you know, at least about broad strokes, I can say, you know, murdering Huguenots is probably a terrible thing to have done, right? Um, But as far as trying to decide what people are trying to do in that situation, whether, you know, decisions that people made that are difficult were right or wrong in these sort of tension-filled times is hard for me to do. I guess in that way, it's not that different from right now, at least in the States. But. It'd be an interesting question to ask Anamik. She's Huguenot, I think, on this server. Yeah, I've talked to her a little bit. Yeah, she's cool. There's a lot of interesting people on this server, you included, that I just, you know, they just keep wandering in and they find each other, and that's something I just really like about this place. Yeah, I don't know why I waited so long to do it. I guess, you know, I just, the time wasn't right. But it was about, you know, it was right around the time that I sent a message to you about three weeks ago or something like that. And I just sort of popped in. And um, I guess in some sense, I was sort of prompted by the fact that, you know, I don't know what the social situation is like where you are. But at least here, I was seeing, you know, both in my sort of social media sphere, but even in my more immediate sphere of just people that I know, I could just see sort of the tension building and lines being drawn and people asking for me or other people to, you know, basically to make sort of creedal statements about which sort of social movement to side with. And I just sort of found myself thinking like, well, I say the Nicene Creed on Sundays and I think that's good enough. And I'm not really <laughs> sure where that puts me. Yeah. Your alliances were laid down a long time ago. Yeah. Uh, I would say my church is already pretty pretty clear in where it stands on 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 this matter. So it it isn't really a discussion that's being had. We're we're mainly just dealing with with COVID more as a problem than than anything else. Like, I mean, I'm assuming you're you're referring to the culture war that's going on in the states. Yeah, and and yeah. and everything around uh, police uh, police uh, uh, misconduct. Now, yeah, and I think, yeah, go ahead. As far as I can, as far as I know, there isn't really much of a police conduct 
in the Netherlands, but there were people here who were demonstrating. Uh, how do I word this? They were demonstrating against the police misconduct in America. So in solidarity, I, I, that's the right word. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd read about that, that there was a lot of that sort of movements and solidarity going on in Europe. Yeah. Um, I haven't read a lot about it, uh, but I was, it was sort of on the edge of my radar that that was going on. Um, yeah, I think we're just sort of struggling to understand, you know, what to, how can we as Christians engage politically in a way that is both, well, how can, how can we engage politically knowing that engaging politically is always sort of a negotiated game, mm -hmm. right? Knowing that it always means that you are going to sort of have to align yourself with groups or with people that you're not going to have 100% consonance with. Sure. And sort of how, how do we navigate that? And I think there's there's coming to be more clarity on how to do that well. But especially a couple of weeks ago when the when the oven was really hot, there were people who were just like, you need to say these words and say them now. And other people yelling back at them, no, I'll never say those words. And you need to actually say these words, which are the opposite of what you like. And I can't tell if we're saying them to make you angry or to make us happy. And <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, no, that was very much, a, <laughs> I remember that. Did the whole, we need to know which side you're on, which is always what happens when ideologues take the stage, I guess. I, I, I do find, I mean, part of me understands the, the, the need for, um, uh, ex, uh, hang on, let me find my English, the need for uh, um, ex, expressive stance taking. I mean, we look at the, let's say, the civil rights marches in the United States of the 60s, and, you know, pastors marched in that. A king himself was a pastor. Absolutely. Uh, so, like, where where are the pastors now? Why should they be marching at all in this? Is this the right place to march? And, I mean, I don't know how to answer that question uh, as, as far as it's relevant to my own country, but I, I understand that in the States the question would be asked again. And the, oh, yeah, I would say they have a point. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's been something that's been, you know, a big thing in, in Orthodox circles um, that we, so there was a Greek bishop who marched. Um, and one thing that's often sort of heralded as this, this big thing for the history of Orthodoxy in America, which it's kind of hilarious because the history of Orthodox in America is that we're like this tiny little fringe movement. that's like 0.001% of whatever. And there just aren't that many of us. So it's, it's kind of inconsequential, you know, as far as like mass movements or anything. But there's this picture uh, during the civil rights movement of a Greek bishop named Bishop Yakovos, who's standing right next to King during the marches. Mm. And so that's that's sort of this image that gets thrown around a lot as saying, like, see, we did something. <laughs> um, and And there was a lot of sort of, especially when the marches were first starting, there was a lot of sort of like, where are bishops? When are they going to march? Um, we did yeah. have one who did one that I know of, uh, Bishop um, Elpidophoros, who is another Greek bishop who marched in, gosh, I don't remember where, somewhere in the northeast. Um, but I don't know of any others that have done that. Not that I'm calling them out or something, 
because I, I don't know that I have the answers either. Hmm. It's only to say that that's what I know. We did have one at least, and I don't know about the rest. Yeah. The other, thing, yeah. The other thing is that a lot of our bishops are elderly. Um, they skew elderly anyway, and so um, I can I can understand why there might be those who would also encourage them not to do it so that we have their leadership because the other civil rights movement, if we're going to call this a new one, whatever it is, uh, didn't happen in a pandemic. That too. Yeah. That that's, that's a factor in my mind. American Orthodox was like what, eight to 10% of the population. Okay. So I know we seem huge, yeah. but we're really not, we're really tiny. Okay. I mean, our growth rate might be looking pretty good in the last like four years or so because of people like Peterson, but as far as as far as our national presence, you know, <laughs> it, it just fascinates me. Like you have this psychology professor, he goes out there on stage and people are like, I'm going to go check out this Orthodox Church. It's just right. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, and, and he, you know, he talked to uh, I mean, this is probably largely known on the discord, of course, but he knew Peugeot before this this whole sort of his whole sort of status mm -hmm. took off. But there's a. There's a there's a talk that he gave in an Orthodox church somewhere in Canada. You know. Yeah, I think I've seen that one. Yeah. yeah. He and Peugeot both gave talks. Like one after another. And he's like actually in a church giving the talk. Peterson is. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so there there is there is a weird there's a weird connection there. And I don't totally understand it. Yeah, but you can only love Dostoevsky so much and, you know, not really be... <laughs> Everything. Well, yeah, yeah. And he was actually one of the other things I had written down on my list of things to talk about. <laughs> well, we're kind of running into the 45-minute mark, so you got like we got like 15 minutes left. Is there anything in particular you want to talk about? I, well, you, so you mentioned the story about, about Nietzsche uh, saving, the, saving the horse, which is... A weird story in and of itself but it's also a weird story because it's reminiscent of a story that shows up repeatedly in Dostoevsky's literature um it shows up in several of his stories where like a peasant is beating a horse or a mule and somebody like goes over and throws their body on top of the mule and takes the whip for it um and it usually tends to be a character who's sort of like well in sort of a Nietzschean position they've sort of gone to western europe and they sort of don't know what to do and they're sort of having a meaning crisis and then they see this thing and they just act. Um, but I actually had a passage from, have you, have you read uh, the brothers Karamazov before? Uh, oh, I will be honest with you. I got quite a, f a bit in, but I kept confusing who was who. <laughs> That's always what happens. That's always what happens. I will um, try again. Well, uh, there's a there's a passage in the middle. So you've read enough probably to know who Father Zosima is. I I've forgotten. I'm sorry. I be I, no, I, okay. th I think I got to the part where like everybody is in the in the uh they're, they're going to a I think a monastery or something where where one of the kids is in training to be like a, a acolyte and they're just all fighting and everybody's oh, yelling yeah. at each other and there's this old sickly <laughs> priest or bishop or it's just awful. Like these people are just in their own hell. Oh yeah, yeah. It's this. It's this whole big brawl in a in a in a monastic cell. Yeah. It's an amazing scene. 
um, partly because, well, Zosima is the one who's in the center of it, and he's able to kind of, you know, like, I don't know. This this sort of reminds me of of what we were talking about earlier about what attracted me to Paul is like he's he's able to sort of he's able to love these people even though they're just all despicable. You know, he's he's able to to uh, and not in sort of an abstract way. He's able to love them very concretely. Like he's able to sort of be there with them and meet them at the at the place that they are. Uh, yeah, it's it's a mysterious sort of thing, and uh, one of the things that Dostoevsky talks about in the Brothers Karamazov is there were three characters I was going to talk about, and you brought up exactly the perfect scene because two of them are there. There's this guy named Musov who's sort of a minor character. He's like a Russian by birth, but he studied in France, and now he's sort of come back to Russia and thinks the revolution needs to happen and mm-hmm. hates what Russia stands for, thinks the church should be dismantled. But he's in this cell. He's been invited by Father Zosima to his cell. So he kind of doesn't really know what to do. <laughs> um, because he hates everything about where he is. But but he feels like he should go. So the, the funny thing about Musov is he talks all the time about loving mankind. He keeps talking about humanity in these sort of broad terms. Um, but then whenever he meets any real people, he just can't stand them. <laughs> they just drive him nuts. Or he thinks they're idiots. Um, and there's there's another character named Father Farapont, who I don't think he's in the scene. He might be mentioned. He's another monk at the monastery. And he walks around the monastery all the time. And he thinks he sees devils all the time. He thinks he sees devils literally behind every doorway. And so the way you know Father Farapont has entered a room is you hear the door fling open and slam against the wall because he just crushed the demon that was hiding behind it. <laughs> <laughs> and and he hates Zosima. He thinks he thinks Zosima is, you know, too nice. Uh, he's he's too sort of yielding to sinners. Um, why did we why would he even talk to somebody like Musov? He's a terrible man. Uh and, and Zosima sort of exists in this interesting space between them where he's, he's this symbol in the novel of sort of what it means to be loving. Um, he, doesn't, he doesn't do it by talking about how we're going to do great things for humanity, although he does talk about that. He does it by sort of treating people who are really difficult to deal with uh, well. And there's a quote that I was going to read from his speech in the middle. Of course, now I'm probably not going to be able to find it, right? That's okay. Um, yeah, here it is. Here it is. So it, it's, sort of, it's sort of Zosima prophesies the meaning crisis, if you want. Um, he says about the state of Russia in his own day. This, and this book is published, right, like 1879, 1880. Um, he says, oh, wait, I thought I found it and I didn't. Here we go. Look at the worldly and all who set themselves up above the people of God. Has not God's image and his truth been distorted in them? They have science, but in science there is nothing but what is the object of sense. 
the spiritual world, the higher part of man's being is rejected altogether, dismissed with a sort of triumph, even with hatred. The world has proclaimed the reign of freedom, especially of late. But what do we see in this freedom of theirs? Nothing but slavery and self-destruction. For the world says, you have desires and so satisfy them. For you have the same rights as the most rich and powerful. Don't be afraid of satisfying them and even multiply your desires. That is the modern doctrine of the world. In that they see freedom and what follows from this right of multiplication of desires. In the rich, isolation and spiritual suicide. In the poor, envy and murder. For they have been given their rights, but have not been shown the means of satisfying their wants. They maintain that the world is getting more and more united, more and more bound together in brotherly community as it overcomes distance and sets thoughts flying through the air. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 lovely. It like the more the more I start reading about this stuff, the more you just see that this discussion has been had over and over again. That, that right, it could have been written today. Yeah, exactly. It's it's not particularly new to our age. Yeah. And, yeah. and and his his totalizing vision I think is really cool too that he sees sort of, you know, he sees the problem for both the people who have and the people who don't that the sort of current way that things are is going to eat both of them away in different ways. Mm. That's what I found interesting about Tolstoy is he, he finds himself in one group and he doesn't seem particularly happy there. But then he <laughs> kind of just overanalyzes and looks at the other group and like, well, seems to work for them. They must know something I don't. So I'll just pretend and go through the motions and see if that works. I don't know if you've if you've read Tolstoy's works. I, I assume you have. Only short stories. I haven't read the 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 big like you know. No, neither have I. But size novel. No, 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 no. Neither have I. I've only read some of his religious writings. But uh, I think Peterson quotes a whole bunch of that, and that's why I went to look it up. Because yeah, Tolstoy just analyzes all these. The basically a sort of ecle ecclesiastical. Everything is futile, and why doesn't anybody realize that? And why aren't they all just recoiling in horror at the the terrible realization of of non-being? <laughs> oh wait, these religious people are happy. Yeah, okay, but yeah, they're just they're just deluded. Yeah, but they are really happy. You can you can kind of hear the guy thinking, and eventually right. he just decides. Well, maybe maybe I should just go do that instead. Right. Right. Well, it's like it's like uh, my my priest gave a gave a sermon this past Sunday, and in it he talked about he talked about how he sort of felt as though the the sort of current state of things in the world had sort of you know been a distraction to him, and it had it had sort of not created good things for him in terms of how he was the sort of patterns of behavior he was enacting. But the way he thought about it was like Peter trying to walk on water, right? Peter sees Christ walking on the water and he says, I want to do that too. Christ says, all right, well, come to me, right? And so Peter tries to do it 
And we all remember that he sinks. But what we forget is that for a moment he doesn't mm-hmm. because he's focused sort of in the right place, right? He's, he's focused on Christ. And then as soon as his attention shifts, that's where the problems begin. And I was thinking about that story in connection with what Christ says about knowing people and things by their fruits. Right? Like, what is the fruit of being focused on this thing or this? What happens to how I think and how I talk to my wife and how I interact with people around me and how I spend my time when I'm thinking about this? Or this. Yeah, no, that's that's dead on. And I, I sometimes I sometimes get the feeling that as a society we sort of take take behavior for granted. Like, oh well, that's easy. Just just you know, just do the right thing. And then you know, right? It's like <laughs> then we just have this huge psychiatric industry. Uh, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, it's like Peugeot. One of one of one video that he did that I think is hilarious is the video where he's he's like sort of taking Steven Pinker to task, and he keeps saying that all Pinker says is just be more rational, be more rational, be more rational, <laughs> and it doesn't it doesn't work, right? Because it doesn't take into account our attention. Where is the reason sort of springing from? What are we focused on? What's the foundation of that reason? Yeah. I mean, a, a good friend of mine who is quite a militant atheist uh, says, well, you know, if it was, if, if, if we wouldn't have had religion, we would have had colonies on Mars by now. <laughs> and then, of course, my first question is, why would you want that? But that's a good question. It's like, how, how would you like, I mean, we we probably need calculus for that, which was co-discovered by Newton and Leibniz, who were both pretty religious. And then so I said, well, you know, just religious people. I mean, the whole idea of the you know calculus comes from people trying to understand God's creation. Yeah, yeah, but they would have they would have discovered that anyway. It's just you know, yeah, religion was just something that that they they could have done without it. They would still have found out those same things. I'm thinking that's yeah, extra. a strange. That's that's a religious worldview. That is like there's this there's this secret, rational, intelligent self that is actually responsible for discovery. And and the religion is just some 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 super superstitious cloud hovering around it or, or something like that. I mean, now I I I fully admit that that I used to think exactly like that which is why i find it interesting that that you know i i hear those arguments like yeah no that's that doesn't work anymore not that i'm saying i've i've figured anything out really but i guess what i'm trying to say is yeah lost it darn i lost my point <laughs> oh no i hate when that happens yeah maybe i didn't have a point at all uh ah, yeah, well, well we're at, we're at the hour anyway <laughs> yeah safe by the bell <clears throat> yeah that's right that's right well i'm glad we made it that far i'm glad that uh you know i thought like oh no i'm i'm talking to somebody for an hour but they're not my students you know 
you could just you could just leave if it's boring. Well, oh, I, I was actually, I mean, I was curious about your students. Like, okay, they they are at an Orthodox school. A lot of for a lot of them, their their parents are Orthodox. Like, what sort of questions do they have? Do they come to you with those questions? I mean, what what do they Sometimes. struggle with? How do they think about faith? Yeah, well, and that, and that was part of my attraction to, to Paul, too, is like I saw somebody who was trying to honestly reckon with the problems of our moment and not give pat answers to them or to try to uncover what those pat answers actually really are saying. Right. Jesus is the answer to every question. But how do we how do we say that in such a way that it doesn't sound trite? Right. Uh, yeah. And that was one of the things that attracted me to him. I, You know. That's that's been an interesting thing. And this church is actually, you know, we were talking about Peterson and Orthodox growth. This church has actually been growing a lot lately. We we chrismated 14 people this last Easter. And it's a church of like 150, 200 people. So that's a lot. I think we did that the past two or three years in a row. We've had about four, between 10 and 20, you know, new converts every year. Oh, congratulations. So it's like. It's, it's just crazy. I don't, I don't know. I don't know exactly what's going on. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, it does mean that, you know, and some of those kids are becoming students at the school. And so I'm often confronted by them asking questions about like, you know, they're being confronted with a sort of new kind of Christianity where they sort of thought they knew. They thought they sort of knew what the Bible was all about. And now they're hearing things that make them think like, wait a minute, I've never heard this story talked about this way before. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, I get that, man. I mean, I went to a Greek Orthodox service in Canada and I had no idea what was going on. <laughs> was it at least it was at least in English though, right? Only small parts of it. Oh man, that's rough. <laughs> and you know, people kind of just gave me the hairy eyeball and like, you know, what's this, what's this guy doing here? And I didn't understand any of it, and I had to get out of the way because everybody started like they had to kiss some book, and and then <laughs> these these kind of stars on or suns on sticks were being paraded around. Like no idea what any of this means. Yeah, yeah, they're fans, huh? They're fans, like a like when you watch like movies about the ancient world, and you see like the the king on his big chair being paraded around, and he has servants like who are fanning him. Oh. that's what they are they're fans well and then and just the, the the mystery in there and you know there's there was all this stuff being done in secret where you couldn't see it by the priest yeah yeah and, and just <laughs> these 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 old people coming in and kissing the icons and and then just just constant constant sign of the cross and bowing and constant sign of the cross it was just it was it was quite something to behold. And it was three hours long. Yeah, right. <laughs> Not only was there all this activity, but it went on for three hours. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was something. I don't know if I do that again. <clears throat> right. Well, you're you're a you're a, a brave man to do that, especially if it wasn't if most of it was in Greek. That's that's rough. I did ask, like, hey, do do because people were coming in, and I just asked somebody who walked into the main doors, I'm like, hey, could you mind if I, you know, come and check this out? And he's like, well, yeah, this is Greek Orthodox, though. I'm like, yeah, okay. And then some <laughs> old lady started speaking Greek to me, I'm like, I'm sorry, I don't know what this means. <laughs> 
Oh, that's funny. Yeah, there there are a lot of Orthodox churches in the states where you know everything's in English or mostly everything's in English, but there are some other places that that aren't like that. And I don't know what it's like in Canada versus here as far as how much people are doing English. There is one in a city about half an hour away, uh, which which has a huge port. So I think that's that's the reason they have one. And uh -huh. I don't know, part of me always just kind of wants to go check that out at some point post-corona. See what that's like. Three hours? Like, yeah. <laughs> Let's finally find out what all those what all those words they were saying were. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, the only part I could understand was Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy. Yeah, well, you got that a lot. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yes. Kind of mesmerizing. <laughs> I mean, I fully understand the appeal of of that mystery with with and the art and the icons and just a whole different way of experiencing uh, the relation to God and and like I get that and then you you I, I walk back into you know my own Protestant church that I dearly love and it's like where, where where's all the stuff <laughs> yeah yeah where, where where are the symbols so. Yeah, well, and there's not one way to do it, right? It's not like, you know, this is one other sort of amazing thing about traditional churches, the deeper you dig, or I should say like Catholic and Orthodox churches, is it's it's not like if you travel around the world, everybody looks like they're just doing the same ritual from the Byzantine Empire. You know, like there are places in Africa that were Christian since the first century, and they do things a little differently. They have a different musical tradition. Mm -hmm. um, India also. Well, what I like in the Catholic Church is they, well, I guess it depends where you go, but they have part of, uh, they do this to sort of focus on your mortality, this memento mori. And mm -hmm. and then the Orthodox Church is like, let's, let's go to the dungeons and go sit with the bones. I'm like, okay, that's... that's right. <laughs> or, or if you go to an old enough church and there's like a, you know, especially if it's like a cathedral or something and one of the former bishops of that diocese is a saint, then like his whole body might just be there in the church. Huh. And part of the liturgy will be everybody goes up at a certain point and kisses the casket. Wow. It's still there. Yeah, yeah. I've been to churches where they have that sort of thing. If the, if the deceased bishop is a saint. Yeah, I, I was I was in Kiev, Ukraine once. And you can go to this church and it's just this huge crypt and there's all these mummified... Mm -hmm. priests and it's like a tourist attraction you actually can't at least for the orthodox i think this is true for catholics too you can't have a church without relics in it they have you have to have them huh. so like every orthodox church has the relics of some saint in them whether that's a piece of clothing or like here at saint peter's we have fragments of the chains that held peter and paul different Whoa. fragments of chain wow they're on our altar. But yeah, you have to have something like that. And when your church is formed, the, your bishop will, will give you something, give you a relic if you don't already have it. Huh. But some churches have, like there's a church out on the West Coast um, where, you know, there are some saints that we have that are from America, like a guy named St. John Maximovich, who's a bishop on the West Coast and is now a saint. And his whole body is at a church in San Francisco. You can go see it. Yeah, there's 
there's something to that, that acknowledgement of, of mortality, but also a an expectation of of uh, re uh, resurrection. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, yeah, I think August uh, isn't August. I think Augustine. You can also see him somewhere. I don't know where he is. I would imagine a lot of churches have shreds of his vestments or shreds. Well, those are probably all gone, but shreds of bone. That's another common relic. Is a tiny little, tiny little shred of bone. Yeah, my my a lot of churches. My modern mind is like, but another part of me is like, <laughs> yeah. that's kind of awesome, really. <laughs> yeah, whenever I talk to my friends who are not, especially like, so when I was an undergrad, all of my roommates were like totally secular atheists. Uh-huh. Um, so it was like this really, it was this really interesting experience for me because I got to be 24-7 around people who just like saw the world totally differently than I did, right? But we like, we got along. And when I would talk about this sort of stuff, you would just see them like, Ooh, it's weird. You're part of this weird death cult. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, I could totally get that. <laughs> and, yeah, and and looking at myself or sort of imagining myself in their shoes, looking at me, I was like, yeah, that would sound really weird. Yeah, I mean, especially where I live. Like uh, I'm on the bus to work this morning and then my phone, you know, kind of beeps and be like, oh, you should do your morning prayer because I have this app that kind of reminds me to pray. And it's it's a Catholic app. I'm a Protestant. I know it's complicated. Uh, (laughs) So I do Then I just do a 10 minute prayer and I really self-conscious in the the bus because here I am, you know, making the sign of the cross while sitting in the bus with a a mask on because you have to wear a mask. And it's like, well, it makes you really self-conscious when you pray. But on the other hand, I think at some point, I just won't give a shit anymore. So it's like, that's right. That's right. I'll reach the next level when I can just do a full rosary on the way to work. Then I'm good. Woo. <laughs> do a full rosary and you're slow. Now that, that is a, is a big thing for a Protestant to say. Oh, well, I, the sign of the cross is one thing. Oh, I, I, I love praying rosaries, but I just don't do them on the bus yet. It's like kind of, you know, <laughs> before I go to sleep. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I know it is a complicated world. Um, I, I listen to a, you know, I listen to a, a, I read people like Tim Keller. Oh, yeah. I read him before I met Paul, or not met Paul, but started listening to Paul. Sure. Right? I listen to, I, listen, I read and listen to all these, these non-Orthodox Christians and get, you know, amazing things from them so yes it is a complicated world <laughs> uh, the question i actually had rolling around in my head is what in the world is it that unites this discord together openness this community together it's, it's just yeah openness. maybe that's right and and the fact that we're willing to accept that people are having different opinions and that's okay I mean, well, to a degree, I mean, there have been serious disagreements on this place, but also like I can say, you know, my misguided half atheist stuff and people like, yeah, okay, you know, you go figure that out. And (laughs) I, I, it, it is an overly religious server. I'll, I'll, I'll grant, I'll grant it that, but. It is. It we is. all we all but kind of even, see that we have a particular thing that we're all trying to reach. Yes. But even within that context, you know, there's one of the things that I see that's also pretty neat is 
even though it is a very religious server, you have people coming from a lot of different traditions. And, you know, I've seen the sorts of conversations that go on in the Discord server uh, lead to people just not talking to each other anymore. <laughs> right? And that's not what happens. People have these really pointed disagreements, and then, you know, a couple of days later, they're liking each other's pictures of their each other's kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm glad to hear you say that because, yeah, that is really nice. Yeah, it just it just goes. It serves as sort of a a positive example of, you know, what's possible in terms of yeah human community. I know that. So I was a religious studies major in college, or at least that was one of my majors, and. Um, one of the things I noticed is like every great religious tradition agrees that something about humans is fundamentally screwed up. <laughs> and, and people, some of my atheist friends would be like, well, but how do you know that? How can you, how can you make such a bald assertion about like all human beings? And my answer to them was always YouTube comment sections. Yeah. 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 Pretty much. Like, but you Paul's know. community is, is, is proving me, uh, proving that there's a positive potential there as well. It's, it is quite a place where one day you go like, the Pope is the Antichrist, St. Paul was a fraud. Oh, that's a lovely cake you made, you know? It's like... <laughs> that's right. That's right. It's incredible. It's, it's frankly incredible. Yeah. I think that's a lovely note to end this on, man. Yeah. Th this thank, has been great. Th thanks so much for, for having this chat. Yeah. Thanks for having me.